Shemai, welcome back. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation. They organise events to raise money for military charities. The next event is actually tomorrow, so by the time you're listening to this, it's either on, it's either happening as we're speaking or as you're listening, um, or it's in the past. Uh, either way, there is going to be another event, uh, which will be March 2020. It's going to be a, a, a supper club, exclusive supper, cl- supper club, at the Tame Hair Restaurant in Leamington, an absolutely oh, I love that restaurant. I love it. The last Rugby Heroes Supper Club at the Tame Hair, and I'm looking forward to the next one. So you can keep up to date with uh, Rugby Heroes events at rugbyforheroes.org or Rugby Number Four Heroes on social media. They've been going for over ten years. They've raised well in excess of a hundred thousand pounds. Um, since they've been going, um, and they're just a small organisation, so that amount of money is no mean feat. They were formed in memory of Private Joe Whitaker, who was uh, a four-par lad, uh, sadly got killed in Afghanistan, serving on Operation Herrick with the Parachute Regiment, and they intend to raise much, much, much more than their £100,000 that have done so far. So please keep up the tabs of Rugby Heroes at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. Thank you to those guys. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Westway Nissan, a Nissan dealership who is which is headed by an ex-military person. I was going to say ex-military member, an ex-military person, a previous podcast guest, uh, Tony Lewis, used to be Queen's Regiment, which then became the PWRR. Uh, he's also the father of Private Conrad Lewis, who was unfortunately killed in Afghanistan in 2011, serving alongside three para um, in Helmand Province. Tony... And all of the team at Westway are huge supporters of the military. So much so that for service personnel and veterans, they will give up to a 20% discount on purchases at Westway Nissan. They do new and used vehicles. They do private type vehicles, but also commercial type vehicles. So from cars to vans, pickups, all sorts. They even do electric vehicles. Uh, They do the Nissan Leaf which I recently had the pleasure of, uh, I think I had a leaf from Westway for four days while my car was getting fixed and I got a leaf from Westway for four days and it was a bit of an eye-opener, a big eye-opener, not a bit, big eye-opener. Quartered my fuel costs, uh, yeah, the, the the equivalent sort of miles per gallon, if you like, in electricity, it was, it was a quarter of what I would normally, normally have to fork out, which was uh, the biggest one for me. So I'm now looking at trying to get a leaf and get rid of my stupid petrol car. West Nissan Credit UK. They've always got deals on. Your best bet is to get into one of the dealerships and speak to their lovely, lovely staff. Thank you to West Nissan for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, another shout for Nico Viljoin, my good friend in South Africa who's got a, a very rare, type, uh, very rare uh, uh, type of skin cancer at the moment. He's trying, fighting hard to get over it. The best chance of his survival is to go to Sheba Medical Center, which is in Israel. He needs to raise over a million rand, uh, him and his family, uh, to be able to support those medical costs ongoing. They're about a third of the, uh, a third half of the way there to raising that money to be able to sustain the treatment until Nico is fully back to, uh, fully back to health, back to full health. Um, if you go to, so his wife, his fiance Tracy, set up a, a just giving, not a just giving page, a fundraising page, crowdfunding page to help with that. It's a it's a South African based fundraising page called uh, 
called Backer Buddy. If you go to charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico, N-I-C-O, it'll redirect you automatically to the fundraising page. So please donate, if you can, to Nico's fund. He served with the British forces. He served with Three Power. He also served in South African um, security services. He's a legend of a man. We actually did our sniper course together way back in the day. So um, I'd like you to help him, help him as much as you can, if you can. Thank you. On to the podcast. My guest today is Johnny Ball. Johnny Ball is ex-PWRR. He is also ex-Incor. He deployed uh, to Afghanistan with the Incor on Operation Herrick. And he's a reservist. Uh, he is currently recovering from a very, very nasty motorcycle accident, which uh, had a big impact on him physically and mentally. Um, but uh, in the last year, he set up an organisation called Campaign Force UK. Johnny's got a background in politics. Uh, at all various levels from local government right up to national and they set up Campaign Force which is an organisation which aims to get more veterans into politics really interesting chat really interesting guy with um, with a, a, a very diverse background and um, this is the HR Podcast number 72 with Johnny Ball enjoy Right, right, Johnny, cheers. Johnny Ball, thank you very much. Right, to continue the conversation, we try continuing and to start again. Yeah. You had your first panic attack? Yeah. The last couple of weeks? It was about six weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been out with what what can only be described as a, um, a, 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 like a girl's day out with the lads. Yeah. Um, We'd been out, you know, rooftop terrace by St. Paul's, martinis on the terrace, uh, went out for a nice meal. It wasn't exactly your typical squaddy day out because a lot of the lads that I was out with were, you know, either serving or have served. Yeah. Um, and so we'd had this lovely, beautiful day out. I was quite knackered because at that time I was still using sticks to get about in my sort of recovery. And um, I just found myself getting really distant from the group at dinner. The conversation was flowing. I found like just really distancing myself away. And it was coming to the point where I needed to go home anyway. So I had about an hour and a half's commute back um, to home. And um, I had my first panic attack in an Uber. And all I was worried about at the time was that he's going to think I'm really weird and it's going to affect my Uber rating. And um, so at the end of it, once I'd realised, I think when I got to St Pancras, that's what had just happened. I think basically in the the build-up to that amazing day out with, with the lads... I'd been doing too much. I was about halfway through my CBT therapy and I had been cramming my days with too much activity, hadn't been focusing on my recovery. I'd been isolating myself from people in general. Um, Busy, busy, busy. Day out, body, mind went, no, mate. And this panic attack happened. Uh, What happened then, physically? Physically, um, my breathing, it was as if someone had got like a seatbelt and I yanked it around my chest. I literally could not breathe. I was trying to think about all those breathing techniques that you pick up just to try and get a grip. Um, I was wanting to almost chuck myself out of the cab to to, to get out of that confined space. Uh, so fortunately I was familiar with the area, so I was looking out the window. So I had those waypoints knowing that I was almost there and that there was an end 
Um, if I hadn't had that, then I probably would have had to get the guy to stop. And the other thing, do you know those Uber Paul cars where someone else is in that you share an Uber? Oh no. Yeah, you could, it was a bit cheaper because I'm tired. Right, I didn't know about that. <laughs> there was a bloke in the cab as well, some oh, random no. punter. So, um, but the the end of the story was that I then had an hour train journey, and it wasn't that late, but it was a Saturday night. Train was packed, and I literally cried for an hour on that train, and I felt really alone, um, linked to my motorcycle accident, I guess, because that's one of the emotions that I was feeling post um, injury. And a lot of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. And because I got stuck basically under my mo- my arm in my motorbike. Oh shit! Yes. Yeah. 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 So the the, the sense of loneliness. You're pinned. You're pinned down. You know. You crashed. Yeah. So I had a uh, a very heavy Harley Davidson on my on my arm, um, which you know that laceration on my left arm, as you can see, um, was a result of getting my arm stuck. So the fire brigade had to free me. So those kind of emotions of being isolated and lonely um, were one of the, the biggest challenges mentally post-recovery. And that's why I signposted CBT. So when it came to being on the train, and, and no one gave a shit. No one came to see me. I was crying. But I just could not believe that no one came to me. So I did. I literally pulled the pin. And, and I went on Facebook and you know the leave no man behind facebook page it was mm. set up after um, a veteran suicide um and has actually morphed into something that yes looks out for people in their sort of darkest days but has become a bit of a community looking out for each other and i posted on there um no one gives a shit i'm on my own i'm crying i'm on a train i just want to get connected to someone and do you know what? I had messages, direct messages from strangers, uh, men, women, from those that had served, our muckers, who did, I didn't even know. I also had about eight people that knew me. I had one of my mate's dads that I grew up with, who's still serving. His dad, who's a, a veteran, he reached out to me too. And he knows me from the age of 12. So, you know, 18 years later, um, he, he's got my back. Um, I'm going to talk about, yeah, Doing my maths. Yeah, 18 years. Um, so it was a really weird experience. But you know what? It's probably the best thing that's happened to me in my mental recovery. Because I then took the... I told my wife immediately when I got in. Um, because I'd become so much more open about things since reaching out for assistance. And I went to my therapist that Friday. And she said, I'm not surprised. One of the tasks that she had set me was doing an activity diary. Over a two-week period. And she was just having an assessment about what I was up to, basically. And when you do the activity diary, I mean, I added extra columns, typical kind of, <laughs> you know, in core backgrounds, um, you know, add extra columns. And you do like an assessment of how you're feeling, your activity levels, your closeness to others, and then you rate them. And looking at that diary, we just sat down and it was crazy. Even if I wasn't recovering, if I was just everyday me, pre-accident, it was way too much. So no wonder my body and my mind said, no, mate. So even though I didn't want, I wouldn't go through the experience of having the panic attack, that kind of the intensity of it, it was probably the best thing that's happened to me in my recovery. Because since then, literally my scores for anxiety, de- depression, um, there's a PTSD scale that I haven't been diagnosed formally with PTSD. They've just gone so so much better 
um, because my behaviours have changed. It was like a wake up call. Well, with those kind of things, you um, so you mentioned, for example, closest to others, and you lived on it. I've done CBT as well, and you, um, I mean, slightly different process. If I remember at the start of the period through CBT therapy, you you fill out those forms. Yeah, like activity scoring. How are you yeah. feeling? Closest to others. Um, yeah, lots of different things. But people, they sound really fluffy, right? Yeah, and and you have that stigmatized. I mean that. Listen, I, I can I know now, mates. People listening, blog listening, or watching, or fucking ladies, maybe. And you, and they used to, they used to hear they hear that phrase, closeness to others, and thinking fucking close, yeah, fucking, fucking fluffy bollocks. But all these things absolutely have an impact on you. And this is whether you've got a whether you've got a mental injury. I'm I'm, I'm staying away from the other term, mental, yeah. mental injury, right? Whether you've got a mental injury or not. All the little things affect you, whether you think they're 100% or not, right? And the closeness to others is a good example of that. It's like, it's like, well, how is that? Why, how is my closeness to others going to affect me mentally? Yeah, okay, maybe you can see that. Maybe, maybe you can't. You think this is bullshit. But everyone has that time where you go, God, I just want to be on my own. And you go, fuck this. It can't be Samuel. I just want yeah. to just leave me alone for an hour. You know, leave me, I'll just go away for a couple of days, get the hills, leave me alone. Everyone has that. Everyone yeah. has that. Leave it alone. So if being away from people helps, Okay, at certain different times, absolutely not being around people has a negative effect at the wrong time. So if you haven't got that closest of people, if you're not around the closest, you, you people you trust, people you love, and as much as you should or could be, then it has an impact. Just like being around people too much has an impact. Yeah. Different things at different levels. You know. So, I mean, well, I was in a room of loads of my best mates, but I still felt distant. So closest to others is you know doesn't necessarily be a physical manifestation. It can just be the embodiment of how close you feel to people and I certainly was distancing myself in fact it was really weird the other week um, I went to a, rem- a memorial rugby match with my old club Sharnbrook and Colworth and they invited me along a few of the boys serve and um, one of the former captains he'd seen my accident and the kind of post-accident unfold and he said to me he goes mate he said you seem so much more open now he goes, I'll be honest with you, when we first met, in fact, when I got back from Herrick was the first time I met, started playing for the boys, so I was living in Bedford. And he said, back then you were pretty, you were a little bit distant. He goes, but I've seen you become so much more close to people and so much more open. And this was someone that didn't know me that well, who hadn't seen me for a while. And I just thought, do you know what? I've really started to achieve something with this CBT therapy. It's almost like a life plan. Even if something hadn't happened to me, I'd want to do it hmm. because it just completely squares away your business, your relationships, and so many other factors in your life. You become more aware of the little things that matter. Yeah, closeness to closeness to people being an example. You become more aware of the things that have an impact on you, and because um, and because you're not forced into it, but through the CBT and through the counselling, through that network around you that's helping you in a time of crisis, right? Yeah, you are your your hand is kind of forced into trying different things out that you would never have tried in the past. Yeah. Never have tried in the past. Yeah. And an example there, as you said, which is a massive barrier to especially blokes, especially military blokes, um, addressing uh, any issues they may think they ever may have, right, is that fear or a fear of apprehension of having to be more more open emotionally. Yeah. It's definitely that for me. Definitely that for me. To me, it's a big kind of worms. I don't want to address like the negative side because then I'll become more 
positive and I'll get attached to people and people don't stay around all you know forever and and and, and then that, and then and then that'll cause an issue and that'll upset me for example could upset me could compromise me emotionally and then I'm compromised as a human being and I'm as strong as I could be you know it's just that it goes that complex and you think you know but um you it's well, definitely well, had a knock-on effect. It's good to talk. It's good to talk. Oh, and as my brothers, as it is, that I've is seen my brothers and my dad being somewhat from open. I've spoken to them, right. like, so openly recently, <laughs> but without any fear of judgment or, or anything. It just, because we, you know, as a family, we sadly lost our sister for a really horrendous fight with cancer. And I've just seen that they need help too. And, and hopefully they've seen my openness, um, That and I know they have actually, that we just talk so much more as blokes. Um, and the way I look at it is that, I mean, I had EMDR therapy in, in hospital as well from flashbacks. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get knocked out during my motorcycle accident. But um, it, it, so I remember it all. And the, the flashbacks I'd experienced in hospital were really weird. Um, so EMDR massively helped out there. But the way I look at it is that, you know, when you get into the gym and you want to go on the old op massive, you have to tear muscle for it to repair itself and it becomes stronger. I feel that my my mental fitness has been torn through trauma and that the help that I've seek and, and, and the work that I'm doing on, on myself is actually repairing itself and I feel more mentally resilient. I wouldn't have chosen it, absolutely not. But do you know what, it's happened. I'm gonna take advantage of this. I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to grow. And that's how I feel about the whole situation. All right, still, I've got recovery to come. I've got further operations to come. Long-term prospects about my foot, whether or not it will fit into a shoe, whether or not I'll get back snowboarding, playing rugby, cycling. They're all question marks. But you know what? I'm prepared for that now. Way better than I have been in the past. Mm-hmm. The uh, That openness of talking is an interesting one. I tell you what, what's... I, it makes me happy, Last, the last, especially over the last six, seven, eight months, so sort of since the podcast that I'm picking up and interest, and people have, and I've been again because at the same time as really the podcast has gone on, that's when I started climbing a hill of my own um, improvement, should we say? And, uh, and one of the things I've noticed is when when you have a conversation with so an ex colleague, this is happened with myself, so meet up with an ex colleague, and you you know sense that they're just not. There's something not right, you know. It's just a bit. To use yeah. an old phrase, they're just a bit licked. They yeah. just, they just seem a bit licked. But now I look at that and go, instead of thinking, oh, he's, yeah, I'm up at such and such, he's a bit licked. Now I think, well, what's, what's nagging him? Is it, yeah? You know, and just, you sort of monitor it. But the way I approach that now is, I'll, I'll be as open as I normally am now. With when they say, oh, are yeah, I'll, I'll be completely honest because yeah. every week isn't mega. <laughs> I'll be like, yeah, good couple of days, but fucking hell. I'll as highlight the point Tuesday. I was like, I was, just, I was really stressed. Da, 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 da. So trying to encourage them into, I'm, I'm basically laying down and go, look, I don't give a fuck about talking about this. And as soon as they, as soon as they get over the first hurdle of, 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 of opening up themselves, when I say open up, that is them just saying something like, yeah, man, yeah, I'm having a bit of a shit time at the minute. That is their hurdle. Yeah. That is the hurdle. Just acknowledging you're having a bit of a shit time, regardless of what it could be, it could just be work or whatever. But as soon as that first talk or first meeting or whatever's out of the way, man, every other time, it's not like it's a gradual ease into, oh, we're going to get better, we can talk about things more. No, 
they it's like a, a flick a switch is flicking those people and the next time you up at them they are as as open as you and I are now I've seen it yeah. three or four times in the last year there's no way I would have had this conversation with you like <laughs> and you probably feel the same um and do you know what what, did, what have I done in and pre-injury and during in the tr- sort of three weeks in hospital I was listening to podcasts because there's so much inspiration and example out there all, all right you, you, what I had to cope with though is, bench, is stop benchmarking my recovery against other people like for example Sai Harma um, good pal of mine who's immensely supportive in hostel I mean Dublin amputee um, his story inspired me when I was having to deal with the grief of my sister I met him through my work at the time when I was doing a project with Blesma and um, he's become a really good friend in fact when I was in hospital he was sending me offers of spare legs that had been out to the garage because <sighs> it was 50-50 about whether or not I'd have lose my leg. Um, so that, you know, the good old, uh, the humour really helped me through that. But it's their example. They're like pathfinders. They've, it's like, but it's my own individual recovery. I can't have the same experience. It's different. And you have to kind of work your own way through. It's all very personal. But there's so much inspiration example out there. And you just have to find your own way. What works for you? CBT might not work for everyone on that has listened to this podcast. EMDR might not. In fact, yesterday, someone on Twitter sent me a message, um, a female asking about EMDR therapy. And I said, just that. You know, give it a try. Work out what's right for you. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing. A stranger had sent me a message on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I thought it was mega. Yeah, yes, and that's the hope this brings, you know. It yeah. sounds gay as fuck. Yeah. But it's, that's how I would have thought. It's just, it's not. I mean, it's 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 um. I don't give a shit anymore. It's like look, you ask me a question and I ask you honestly. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Because if I answer you honestly, I'm sort of I'm just not, not setting the exam. It sounds too grand like that. But just I, I'm hoping, as you do, that other people will do the same. Because it's not saying that everyone's got an issue. Everyone doesn't have an issue. No. But it's just it's a better way of living. Yeah. mentally it's just yeah. a better way of living yeah being honest with yourself being honest open and addressing be, just be more aware of your of your own mental state in general you know and then and again one of the other like you're saying getting growing from growing from positive from negative right it's one of the things I found I'm certain you have them you mentioned CBT and you mentioned the MDR is I've been exposed to the tools yeah that are there that can improve you mentally and I was exposed to them because they were suggesting me to, to help me. But what I recognised and learned about those tools is those things. I use those now. If I don't even know yeah. I use those tools every day. Yeah. Meditation, for example. I, like I, I try and use them every day because they're just they're just tools to improve yourself. Whether you're at baseline, whether you're below standard, whether you're flipping operating at two hundred percent, they're just extra tools to yeah. help you. Just like in physical fitness, extra tools. Fartlek training, flipping weights, the squat, the squat rack, yep. you know, um, therabands. It's just, just there's physical tools, there's mental tools. And the more you know about it, the more you've got in your armory, and, and the more awesome human being you become, regardless of your background, regardless of how much pain or trauma you've gone through. You know, it's 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 it's, um, it's good because the people exposed to that, the different kinds of trauma, different kinds of bad, mm. not even just trauma, just shit times, they're also the ones who are aware of those tools. And aware of those lessons and can pass them on to other people to help them improve in general. Exactly. Hearing this lesson. 
PWRR. Yeah. So when I was a, a mere sprog at 17, uh, I joined my local infantry regiment, um, which was the 5th Battalion, the, the Princess of Wales' Royal Regiment. Um, so it was the, the TA. Queen's Reg before, wasn't it? It was. Queen's and Royal Hampshire's. Yeah. yeah amalgamated in 1992. Um, obviously, first Colonel-in-Chief was the um, was Lady Diana. Um, so I, I was actually on exercise when Lady Diana uh, passed away. Um, so I remember the RSM cutting about on a quad bike, uh, trying to find the CO to deliver the news that Lady Diana had died. Um, so, but I joined my local TA uh, battalion, um, and because I was mad, mega keen, I ended up deploying um, on what was called an S-type engagement back then, which has been superseded by things like full-time reserve service um, and obviously mobilisation of reservists. But back then, there was no chill well, there was no onboarding. I literally turned up with my kit at Howe Barracks and deployed to Northern Ireland. So you were TA, then you went S-type, which is yeah. basically full-time reserve. Yeah, yeah. I was 18. Yeah. So I turned up at battalion, completely wet behind the ears. Did you have to do depot? No, I'd done Catterick, TA Catterick. Uh, what was that? Two weeks. <laughs> yeah, I shit you not. Um, I think I had to do, uh, obviously, what was known as a BFT back then. Um, and I think it was the... Um, whatever the AFT was called back then, um, the eight miler, basically. I had to do those two bits, have a medical, um, tipped up to Howe Barracks. Because the battalion had already deployed, I then did um, what was known as NERT, Northern Ireland Reinforcement Training, at Ballykindler. And within a week, or within about 10 days, I think, from literally 18-year-old TA soldier um, with, with no experience... I was on the streets of West Belfast, and you had two weeks training though. Uh, two weeks, yeah, <laughs> mega, yeah, awesome. Um, but you know, obviously, Nert was good. But you know, I was a bright lad. Um, wasn't particularly fit, so that had to change pretty quick. And when I tipped up to West Belfast to Fort White Rock, I met my corporal, uh, Corporal Andy Shaw, who uh, taught me some of the most streetwise abilities that I've learnt the rest of my life. Um, South, South Londoner, great bloke. I'd love to catch up with Andy at some stage all these years later. But I think it was my first patrol, night patrol, where, do you remember the old um, SA-80 with the uh, the magazine release catch that yeah. used to go weird? So I'm obviously wearing chess rig. Go weird. Well, you know, you'd, you'd bang it and the, the magazine would oh, on the, fall on the, left the, the side, catch yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the left-hand yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. So we had the chess, chess rig. And I remember we were running along the four of us outside a Republican pub and my magazine fell off my world came crashing down around me because I was already a, you know behind on the back foot because my skill set um, you know I was a stab there were only four of us I think on that tour from the TA obviously fast forward Herrick it's a normal the integration of reservists is fairly normal um, so my magazine fell off rounds fell out so we had to get the torch out and count them back in. I think on my second patrol, obviously I've got a good debrief of Andy in Anderson <laughs> Sound Police Station. Um, on my second patrol, um, opposite Fort White Rock in the Turf Lodge, I got bitten by a dog and had to crack on for the rest of the day. Um, the lads were pretty jealous because I was on, I was featured on the NIREP, the Northern Iron Report, which featured all injuries. So there was a bit of envy at the time. Um, but you know what? <laughs> the shit that happened in those fir that first week I then screwed them up. I had a great mentor 
in, in Andy and the rest of the guys and I worked really hard and I had a cracking tour to the point I actually volunteered to then go back to Drum Cree for that summer. The battalion came home and um, three weeks later, well, we formed up as a composite company and then deployed for three weeks uh, attached to One Highlanders and did the cordon for Porter Down. Uh, so we were gone from an urban environment to a rural environment, but probably the best bit about it was going up against Civ Pop against One Highlanders. And it was at the time of the 1998 World Cup when Beckham did that little hill flick um, against the Argentinians. So we were in a room with the Highlanders watching that and he got sent off and it was the end of the, you know, the World Cup. And um, the, the, the jocks were cheering on the RGs. And <laughs> so, so it was, it was just hilarious. Um, and it was yeah, an interesting Civ Pop moment. But I had a really good experience. It was, uh, they did offer me to, to stay on to the battalion. I got an exemplary report, um, but I was due to go to university. I'd got my place. I hadn't even visited the university. Aberystwyth. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go uni. Um, cheers, boys. One of the hardest places to get to, Aberystwyth. Unless you get a uh, car's like, if, you ever gone by train? Uh, this, it's the end of the line, isn't it? Yeah. If you want to go from Swansea to Aberystwyth, which is, I mean, yeah. they're not far apart, like a couple of hours, yeah. you have to go out of Wales. Let's go to Birmingham. Yes, yeah, mental. And then come back in, like east, like 150 miles. Yeah. <laughs> we digress. Yeah. So, uh, so you did the, so basically did I learn with PWR Yeah. What was, First Italian. What, what did you study in uni? International politics and strategic studies. Basically yeah, is warship, yeah. War I know she did international relationship. Yeah, that was like the baseline it, but everyone on the course, most of my muckers wanted to join the military. Um there's quite a few. We were in the officers' training corps. I mean, I was the kind of guy at the OTC that, you know, was on the Cambrian patrol. You know, I was the mega, mega keynote. Any opportunity to do any AT, um, go on any attachment, that was me. I put my hand up. And in my third year... But you were in uni. I haven't done a tour. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so literally, I turned up my first year freshers, squatty haircut, PWR <laughs> t-shirt, you know, <laughs> cutting it about, squatty shuffle. Um, so I soon had to rapidly adjust. There was no sort of transition from a short uh, period of the regular army to uni. Um, apart from the OTC that was kind of my transition but then I had to kind of learn how to be an officer cadet and lead um, but loved it mega keen third year disaster I failed my medical at the regular commissions board because all I wanted to be was an infantry officer um, that was all I ever wanted to be in my life since the age of 13 cadets TA you know 1PWRR uni um, and my world came crashing around me because I literally had no plan B Literally no plan B. So as I waved all my friends off to Sandhurst, this was obviously pre-Telic, pre-Herrick. We graduated in 2001. Um, I waved them off and then I literally got on a plane and went to Canada for a year, which then started what one of my mates, Ben, refers to as the wilderness years. Um, I literally <laughs> spent four and a half years skiing and snowboarding. Oh, you mentioned this before. Yeah, yeah. but in the summer... Um, I was a holiday rep, Magaluf, you know. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Achieving very little, having good fun and doing it. Do you know what? It was. It sounds all <laughs> good fun, but the skills that you learn, so those transferable skills from so the military, you don't realise at a time, oh yeah, transferable skills. But the shit I was having to deal with, I had to deal with domestic violence, death, 
um, two sisters uh, who have beaten each other up and stilettoed each other in their room. Um, you, there was a child protection issue that I had to respond to on behalf of the company uh, because the FCO rang up and I had to get a child out of a situation. So they were a real kind of hard situation. Ski was a bit different, different clientele <laughs> compared to Magaluf. So I literally was skiing and snowboarding all day. It was it was mega. Um, but the skills that you had to learn, it was, it was no, you know, oh, well, you know, not, that's not a proper job. It was hard. Mm. And I've made some friends for life uh, from, from that period. It was a real close-knit community, which after all this buggering about tra- you know, traveling, I even did a ski season in Australia. Um, went out there for a year. What? Yeah. Where's, where's the fucking snow in Australia? The Snowy Mountains. There's a resort called Threadbow. Never heard of it. Yep. Really? Yep. Where in Australia? South Australia. Mm. It's, yeah, good little hill. Um, and I saw kangaroos hopping through snow. I shit you not. <laughs> it was it was the weirdest experience. But yeah, it comes to a point though when then Afghanistan was happening and, and I had this overriding loss of purpose. So after four and a half years of that lifestyle, I came home and I was like, what am I going to do in my life? Can't go in the military. Don't want me. Found medical for psoriasis. Cheers for that. Fucking hell. Yep. Really? Yep. That was it. Bar and entry Is that back still then. the case now? No. Hence why I ended up somewhere hot and sandy what a few years wild. later. But bar and entry. So I had to find something to do and I found politics. So, why politics? Um, I, I guess when I was away, I, I became a little bit of a... Very socially aware. I studied it, obviously. I'd read it, yeah. I'd I'd um, I'd done a bit of fundraising in Australia, so you know those charity muggers on the street. What, for campaigns. Yeah, for different. So Medecins Sans Frontieres, Save the Children. I did oh, a yeah. bit of fundraising for them. Oh, you mean I thought you meant fundraising for uh, a political campaign? No, no, like NGOs. I was proper right on. You know, I worked with MSF in uh, Mozambique. Well, massive. Resp- I know they've got a difficult relationship with the military, but. Um, massive with respect. With yeah. No, when I was with Team Rubicon, I worked with them. Not when oh, I really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, mega. Yeah, they let me in their wagon. Huh. They got stuck for two days. They didn't know. They were for four days. Anyway, go on. They do now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess I became really socially aware and um, I, my ambition was to go and work in Africa with an NGO. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so when I got back after a relationship breakdown, um, something I've been traveling with, I was like, shit, what do I do? And so I was looking for work, political work, because I thought that's, you know, social conscience. And in the same, I'd applied for a job with the Conservatives and the Lib Dems in the same week. I literally had no... the job was? Uh, so the one in the Lib Dems, and I told this to the Lib Dems the other week, it was in the international office. And then with the Conservatives, it was to start an apprenticeship as a constituency campaigner, running the office of a member of parliament. Literally had no ideological... Um, in fact, when I went for the interview with the Conservatives... Um, I literally joined the party the day before because Scott thought it looked good on the, on the, on the, <laughs> the application. Yeah. And when I tipped up, everyone was a political geek. They'd worked, you know, they were counsellors. I had no experience apart from these transferable skills from the military and being a holiday rep, funny enough, which they liked. Maybe not some of the bits of Magaluf. But um, so long story short, I started on this path of working for a member of parliament and running elections and... Uh, running the constituency operation for an MP. And in fact, my first election campaign that I ran, I had 37 candidates. And 
I realised I had no experience again, but I was good at it because of kind of some of the skills that you and I have got from military life. In fact, the best candidate that I had in that local government election was an ex-squaddy, was a Royal Signals Corporal. Um, and we were told he wasn't going to win that seat, but we did because he worked bloody hard and he had those skills. So that was kind of the early days of that realisation that there are transferable skills in civilian life from our backgrounds, but also specifically in public life, public roles, whether it's local government or members of parliament or operationally, like I did. I was an, oper- was an operational role behind the scenes. So that was really the, where the penny started to drop. So I moved around in that role in different parts of the country, including here in London. And I thought Herrick had happened. I'd lost a mate on Telic, a schoolmate, um, Tom Tanswell. Um, and then um, a really good friend of mine, a Gurkhas officer that I grew up with, Lee Roberts, got badly blown up blown up in um, on Herrick. He's, thankfully, he's fully recovered now. Family, great friends still. And I just had this thing that was this itch that my military career hadn't panned out. I had to I had to ask again. By that stage, I was 28, I think, 29. So my local TA, as it still was back then, was the Inc Corps. So I went knocking on the door. Expectation down here. So I thought I'm going to fail the medical. Guess what? The rules had changed. Before I know it, I'm at Purbright. Guess who's my section commander? Chris Shirley. <laughs> Shaka for Chris. <laughs> yeah, Shaka for Chris. Um, so Chris at back then was a, as we know, uh, doing amazing things and, and recovering from his own uh, challenges at the moment. But at the time, was a full screw in the RMP before joining the, the Royal Marines. And I've got best recruit, standard. I was the only Inc. Corps bloke in my platoon. <laughs> I was the only Inc. Corps bloke in my platoon. So I had this, that, that horrible green, you know, coloured beret that we have. Um, stood out like a sore thumb. And I just realised that, hang on a minute, I've got a taste for this again. I'm back in the club. And there, there was this thing called a full-time reserve service. A good mate of mine, Pete Dollamore, came and did a presentation about the Arabic course. So I thought, I want some of that. I want to go and learn Arabic. That looks Gucci. So I applied uh, for that to do a two and a half year FTRS contract. Of course, I got Pashtu, didn't I? I didn't get, I didn't get Arabic. They wouldn't give you a course you actually wanted to do. You're actually going to use afterwards. Yeah, yeah exactly. Something useful. Um, and before you know it, there, there I am at the def- Defence School of Languages. Uh, for 15 months where is that it was at Beaconsfield it's which was an amazing part of the world to live for 15 months where's Beaconsfield uh, it's in Buckinghamshire fairly near okay. High Wycombe okay, so yeah. put a load of like squaddies yeah. tri-service rank range private soldier to major basics like university in rig put them in one of the most affluent parts of the world and give them loads of time on their hands outside of study they're not fizzing you know, you're out in the town. It was an it was a brilliant social part yeah. of the world. Um, and but you know, at the end of that course, at the end of Pashti, you're only going. There's one or two jobs that you're going to, and the bit that I got was working with um, military stabilisation support group, as it was known back then. It's now been morphed into 77 Brigade. So I was going to be working on the ground uh, as a linguist, doing basic reconstruction compensation from um, you know damages when people's compounds were accidentally damaged in, in contacts um, working with schools local government 
so that was my tour and I was a guess guess who I was attached to what year was it uh, Herrick 15 Lashigar West 15 15 PWRR yeah, yeah. <laughs> one PWRR so I got to Bastion and there on the flight line was a guy I was a private soldier with it's now the CSM of, uh, I was there as a Lance oh, really? Jack I was there as a Lance Jack you know um, and he came up and gave me a hug in front of the guys um, which I thought was absolutely mega um, and yeah there was all these characters that I was in Belfast with there we were working in in, um, in the same PB uh, but it was part of the QRH battle group so there were elements of QRH um, there were also the lads from the, the main um, holding company was support company of One Yorks who completely took me in you know they were a great bunch of lads if you weren't on patrol or working then you were chucking a rugby ball around um, yeah, Yorks. Yeah, you, you remind me there. I cut the podcast ago with Johnny, Mer- Johnny, Mer- Johnny, Johnny Mercer, Johnny M H, Johnny Morton. I think I'm the third Johnny to appear on this podcast. Possibly, yeah. Oh yeah, you are. Yeah. yeah. So Johnny M H. I referenced the fact that when I went there on the third tour on Herrick 13, we took off from the Anglians. It yep. was not. It was Yorks. It was the Yorks. Yeah. Because yeah. someone beasted me on on. Someone beasted me online. On social media? Yeah. No, in fact, text me. So oh, really? idiot. Listen to Park, you fucking idiots. Go on Yorks. Anyway, so it was, it was yeah. Yorks, not Anglians. Like, Yorks. Yeah, sorry. But because I was this weird like reservist that had worked in politics, a bit older, um, had this skill, this language, uh, which, again, you know, they teach you BBC Pashto. So you're talking like... Li- BBC well, you're talking like basically the Pashtun equivalent of a public schoolboy. But you're there talking to the Glaswegian accent equivalent of a Helmandi Pashti. Um, so I literally, my first job was to go and buy sheep for an Eid present. So I'm stood in the middle of this field in Helmand talking to a toothless farmer. Literally, it was like, you know, can you guess what it is yet? Sort of <laughs> like charades, um, two syllables. Did the job though. But it was just, it, it was hilarious. So Wherever I went, I took this little notepad and this phrase, um, da sashi day, means what is that thing? Literally, I was pointing everything and it filled up this vocab book das of Helmandi. Da sashi day. Yeah, da sashi day. Da sashi day. What is that thing? Um, and <laughs> so by the end of it, when you actually become useful, so I had about, I guess I was probably about two months in, I then started to diversify. The guy I was working with got injured on R&R. So I was on my own um, and I was just bored. Um, the drawdown was happening in terms of the you know the MSS uh, T teamwork that was happening was not as frequent, so you weren't going out there rebuilding wells, and there was a big effort on rebuilding police stations. Um, but I was handing compounds over, you know, so I was basically getting sort of some interesting farmers who a tiny little compound that was a CP and paying out compensation because obviously we'd we'd had their compound for a few years. So understanding that Afghans, give, give them an inch, I, I love them dearly, but we'll take a mile when it comes to things like how many trees are in this compound? There are a thousand. And you're talking about, <laughs> of course there were, mate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 10 metres square. How would you get a thousand trees in here? That's Middle Eastern culture. It's brilliant. Though, it's, it's brilliant. Culture. It's funny. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. But, but, so, but then you're adding value because you know the language, right? Yeah. So you can laugh it off and work it out. Um, but then I started doing a bit of police advisory. So working, I think it was with I think it was four Scots three or four Scots can't remember but I spent three weeks 
working around there. And by that stage, I understood the humour. I understood I could rebuild really a rapport, and I was becoming useful. That was at a time of heightened tensions with the Afghans. So you know the the green on blue stuff. Um, so oh, I actually yeah, felt yeah. that I was adding value because I knew I was making it safer. Um, and towards the end, we had a you know uh, a deliberate op. Again, working with the AMP, partnering with the Afghan National Police. Um, I then went and worked with, um, you know, the, the beginning of this conversation, but the interrogators, just, to, you know, doing some in, um, basic uh, interpreting there. So I had a really varied tour. Um, and because I, just, I was just put my hand up, I was a bit older, had these, it was a reservist, so some, had something else from outside of life. And I was really proud that, I got a Commander Land Forces commendation at the end of that tour. Congratulations. Um, so, yeah, there was... And then that's it. Bang. You know, POTL, post-operational uh, tour leave. No resettlement as a reservist. I'd just spent two and a half years of my life outside of my civilian career. My job wasn't held because I'd left to go and deploy. Um, and then you have to go and start again. So I went back into politics. You not have the option to join up. Um, I did kind of toy with the idea. I think for my family, for family reasons at a time, um, I was like, do I really want to start again? As a, I think I was thirty-two. Then I was thirty-two. Lance Shackett, thirty-two. Yeah. I saw actually, I've, I've had a really good, you know, I've come back. I've had a good tour. Um, I, so I went back to politics. Um, working for someone at a time that was a cabinet minister going back to what I did but you know what I was so much better than my job why is that? well obviously we were fighting a counterinsurgency and when you're working in politics on the ground it's a counterinsurgency you have to do key leader engagement you have to identify um, you know the threat um, you have to um, identify different human terrain within the environment and so all those skills, obviously not in an aggressive way, but all those skills and that empathy and the ability to understand people was everything that I'd learned in Afghanistan. And I just found myself, I mean, I literally did human terrain analysis mapping of the constituency that I was working in. And I, I was really effective in terms of the output of, of being good at my job. And again, the, that penny started to drop even louder about the transferable skills of the military and politics. So I just started to rethink about how, why aren't more military involved in public life? Literally post-war Britain was rebuilt by the veteran community physically. And I just found at that time that there was some rebuilding to be done here in our communities. So I then went to work at the MOD for three years, working on transition. So I ran a relationship management team working with big business. What do you mean working on transition? So building relationships around the Armed Forces Covenant, working with big organisations like Barclays and Deloitte um, and Tesco and, and all those kind of big businesses in order to build a programme of change within organisations so organisations could tap into the transferable skills for the mutual benefit of veterans, reservists, spouses, cadet force, adult volunteers. So I spent three years running the relationship management team, um, which was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. Uh, just seeing how far the business community had come in terms of responding to the talents of the military community, 
just seeing some of the numbers, seeing some of, I mean, you could see it, literally the amount of reservists businesses were hiring. And that was the main effort at the time was the relationship with the reservist community. And business just got it. Yes, there's still some work to be done. Of course there is around transition. But in terms of the response from the business community, they're absolutely lapping up veterans. Yeah, I'm talking about the big companies here. We need to give more support to SMEs. Indeed, there are loads of small, um, medium enterprises that are doing that. Um, but for me, I was like, right, hang on a minute. There's some transferable skills of veterans in politics. I've proven that. I've seen it with some, you know, the veteran politicians in Parliament. There are some massive key skills for the future from the business community. And Deloitte did a report on it called Veterans Work, where they actually mapped this out. So I thought, well, hang on a minute, why is no one doing this in politics? I knew from my own experience that it was bloody hard to get people to stand up in their communities to become councillors. You tend to get the same kind of people, lots of husband and wife teams, retired people, people that just happen to know someone. And the bar, I have to say, there are some good councillors out there across this country, of which there are 20,000 local government councillors across the UK. But by and large, from what I'd seen in the military, there's no comparison. Well, but the problem is with it is that people don't... <clears throat> and I, I, I was guilty of this in the past, and in the last sort of few years I've become more interested in politics, just generally, because I didn't understand it, and because I'm getting on for like yourself. <laughs> um, no offence. <laughs> uh, is that people don't, underst- people don't understand the way that structure is and where... The, like anything, really. Like any... When you get out, you're sort of a bit naive in terms of how... Yeah commerce works, co- corporate world works and you know just because a company is a tech just because Facebook is a social media company doesn't mean it hasn't got a HR position in it yeah. or project manager position yeah. you know or facilities management position it's just a tech company but it's got all these positions and you can you know it's the same with exactly it's, it's the same with politics that naivety with it but also it it's perceived it may be perceived as as well as like a not a dishonest thing but just, it's just so much stigma around it. Yeah. You, you sort of brought up to either love a party or hate another or both, right? But I mean, it really put, pricked my ears up there when you were talking about the human terrain mapping and mm. that, that campaign stuff. It really is a case of, it really is a case of, you're on, you're on tour, this is heart, you're talking hearts and minds. This, yeah. What you're talking about is hearts and minds, right? When you're on tour, you 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 have a you have an area of operations, and you you achieve an impact in that area of operations, and that is to you know in the case of uh, Helmand, it's to um, take control of that area, keep the Taliban out, so you can impose your influence on it, whatever that may be. You know, help the people on the feet. Exactly the same that politics. Exactly like it's any exactly election same campaign. Politics, except yeah. the impact is different. Yeah. The influence is different. You have to treat each area with a different thing. It takes it takes that hearts and minds awareness. You don't go knocking on like you can go knocking one area on the door. Exactly, what you're doing you were doing um, Helmand. You got to go do an op in one area, but you know it's a bit of a Taliban understand. stronghold. Yeah, you'd understand. You're going into that area and you're speaking to people a little bit differently than you would in other areas. It's exactly. It's the, nice it. it's the same. I know. You, you it's moving, exactly. It. It's the same thing. What's what's interesting me recently is becoming aware of just how many veterans there are in it there aren't loads right but no I've obviously had Johnny Mercer on the podcast I had the good fortune the other day to meet with Dan Jarvis yep guess who Dan Dan Jarvis ex-Power Edge yep guess who Dan Jarvis is 
um, one of Dan, Dan Jarvis's offices, one of his right hand men. A fucking another power edge lad, yeah. a ranker called um, Richard. Richard, yeah. what's his surname? He won't mind. Richard, Richard. Hey, Richard, yeah. a power edge lad, right? And the thing is, that, and people I think, well, yeah, Dan has got in there because smuckers, smuckers, yeah. Well, that is, that is not a big element. He's there, there it's on very merit. small. Exactly, mate. Because yeah, what 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 is one big thing that is is a uh, that is missing in politics in general? Trust. Yep. Who can you? Who values, do you know you can trust? Values and trust. Get a better next year. Because one, you ask them to go and do something, they're going to fucking do it. And two, you can you can trust them. Yep. Like in general, sorry, so easily to him. In general, if you're military, it's your own. If you if you're part of one tribe, you tend to trust your own tribe more. Than that. Same with the military. Same with you know, any background. That's what it is. He's got a got a power edge lad working for him, Dan Jarvis. And 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 yep. And I thought it was amazing. And when I went and met with him. It's the same when I was with Johnny on air and off air. It was just so refreshing, so refreshing because they just, just fucking open. And do you honest. not think the public is crying out for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is not a party political point. Um, I have people a, that don't put you around the bush. No, I have a background with one particular party, but um, I'm very passionate about sorting out our politics. By and again, this is not an officer sport. I'm a bloke that started off as a private soldier in PWRR. I'm a senior NCO in the Ink Corps Reserves, uh, still serving just about. Um, no, I'm on a Fablon Biff jet at the moment <laughs> um, due to the accident. But this is not an officer support. So there were about, on the last parliament, there were about 51 members of parliament military experience. But that ranged from like two weeks in the TA right up to full careers like um, Colonel Bob Stewart, for example. Well, you had that bluffer who said she passed SAS selection. Oh, oh, God, yeah, let's not talk about her. Okay, um, but <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are loads, the transferable skills and values of veterans. So light in business, transferable skills, check. But then if you then put that in politics, as I've experienced myself and as I've witnessed, you then have this other layer, which is the values and standards. All right. And that is the bit, that's the golden nugget that we need in our politics. So that's precisely why I set up Campaign Force. So Campaign Force is the only organisation, non-party political, we're a community interest company, and it's set up to inspire, train and coach veterans to stand up and serve again in politics. So I started up this year because everything I'd seen, everything I experienced, I've got a decade of experience working in politics. I've got muckers um, that are veterans or reservists working in politics as well. Um, so I've got this network. I know cross-party. Um, so obviously Johnny, I know personally, and Dan Jarvis's team. I've been to see Richard and, 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 the, and the guys there, and they're very supportive. And I've been to see the chief exec of the Lib Dems, former minister of the armed forces, even the SNP have been out and reached out to me. So I'm a non-party political organisation. I've been to both Labour and Conservative conference this year. In fact, at the Labour conference, I had the Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. Um, she was there, um, near Griffith. Oh, yeah. And she um, and I had Labour MPs who basically said in the public room, look, Johnny's actually been responsible for defeating a lot of our colleagues in his previous career. So the fact that I was there was literally my tanks on the lawn to say that I believe in the power of the values and the transferable skills of the veterans community and it transcends politics. How was it received? Um, really well. In fact, I didn't know this though until I delivered my first course. In both? Oh, okay. So when I... I mean, it's all very good, well and good me saying this and this theory, but until we actually test it on the ground... You just don't know. So in April of this year, um, our good friend uh, Andy Mylop at Facebook. Shout um, out to Andy. Big, big shout out to Andy. I love that bloke, mate. <laughs> <Mary> bloke. <laughs> Nicest bloke. bloke in NATO. Um, 
he um, doesn't age either. It, I know. What Remarkable. Is going on, mate? It's not bizarre. bad for seventy, is he? It's un- unbelievable. But um, so Andy squared me away with some training space at Facebook, and uh, there I was. I designed a course, and do you know what you were saying about? So, for example, the myths of, of veterans thinking, "Oh, I can't go into that industry." I'd seen that, particularly in financial services, and I nicked the idea. So I created an insight event called Stand Up and Serve Again Political Insight Day, and I provide. I, I was there in order to share the secrets of politics. So. Ranging, telling veterans about what's the structure of local government, what are the opportunities, all the different ways that you can serve again in public life. It's not just about Parliament. There are 20,000 local government councillors across the UK. Things like Police and Crime Commissioner, County Council, Assemblies, Welsh Assembly, Scottish Parliament, so many opportunities. So it's basically laying out the landscape, sharing the speak- secret, talking about the skills, making the veterans understand that actually they work it out themselves. They've got the skills that are completely compatible. And we get them to answer that question themselves pretty much. They work it out. And then me and my team, uh, most of us are veterans or, or reservists. We then share the secrets from decades of experience of working behind the scenes in politics. At the last event, Johnny came along um, to spin some dits about his journey from army officer to uh, parliament. And that was a really good insight. And at my... And, and that is when I knew we we're onto something. And, and so the reason why I say that is that I think you can always judge a good course by how many people go to the pub afterwards. You know, when people just like disappear, yeah, right? No, great, thought, yeah, course yeah, is yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think, I think so. Like, right, who wants to go to the pub? Right. And everyone came to it the pub. It could be a super shit course. <laughs> <laughs> I need a pint. That was so bad. <laughs> um, so anyway, they all came to the pub. And it's just on Euston Road, opposite Facebook. And I sat there after not having much sleep the night before because I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Self-doubt, imposter syndrome, all those things. And we delivered this kick-ass course, as I felt <laughs> by the end of it. I didn't feel it at the beginning. And I stood there and there were two guys. There was a guy called Kyle, who's ex-rifles, um, originally from Canada. I think he won Tora Telic, two of um, Herrick, uh, again, um, a Tom. Um, and then Stephen, ex Incor, um, again, recent tour of Afghanistan, now a school teacher. You had uh, Kyle, who's working in the city, both absolutely kicking ass in their civilian life. Stephen has identified himself as a conservative. We don't get involved in that, they sort of self identify. If they do need any help, then we can make introductions. And Kyle would identify himself as Labour, okay, during the day. And there they were in the pub, right? But you know what? None of that mattered because the commonality they had was the commonality of service. It was like a human bridge across what might be seen as the divide. Their their values, the standards, to the extent where they both won't mind me saying this, on social media, I've seen them share their good news stories about their achievements in the political world. Even though they're part of different parties. Exactly. So Stephen, for example, passed the Parliamentary Assessment Board. Kyle, again, through our help, had actually become, uh, is on the National Committee of the um, Labour Friends of the Armed Forces from our intervention. So we're seeing that that happen, them actually going on to do, become, get involved in politics, thanks to Campaign Force. But more importantly, that human bridge 
is there because of that shared service and shared values. So I immediately fought there, sat in the pub, just going, if we can bottle this, and if we can put that in all of our communities across the UK, then our communities are going to be so much better. Our politics is going to be so much better. And that's what's really firing me up about Campaign Force. Because I think it's got so much potential. Um, it's early days. We've run another workshop since. Um, rank range, private soldier to brigadier. I had two MBEs in the room and one OBE. And the feedback we got from them is that no one's ever asked us before. Asked what? To serve again. Oh. But we are now. And that that's completely why, that, that was, that's why I'm doing, I'm doing Campaign So Force. Campaign Force is a, a training organisation. Mm. But is it also um, a referral organisation for work? So in terms of referrals, we don't get involved in the party political stuff. We're politically agnostic, which might sound a bit weird. But can parties come to you for, for, and say, look, we need, we're looking for people? I'm, I'm having conversations with the parties. So if we can be part of the triage or the feeder, if they say, oh, who, you know, because it's a closed shop. If any of my friends, not just military ones, say to me, I really want to get involved in politics, where do I start? We can help them start with that. We can make the introductions. We can open the door. But we're certainly never going to say, mm, do you know what? Hugh, you look like you could be X, Y, Z party. Yeah, we're not going to get go down that road. That's that's their bag. People work them. Some people haven't got a clue, and that's fine. But if they want to go and speak to all the parties, we'll set up those conversations because we've got that network. For, predominantly, where our sweet spot is is about sharing the knowledge. So we basically get them in at the top of the hopper, get them along to our insight event. They may then never do anything about it. Our conversion rate is about twelve people come, four people then go on to do some kind of activism straight away. Some might sit on it and say, do you know what, I'll get involved in politics. What do you mean So go out knocking on doors, um, applying to be a councillor, um, doing their parliamentary assessment board, you know, or getting involved as a volunteer. Parliamentary assessment board, go on. Basically, it's like the Army Officer Selection Board and the other single service equivalents for MPs. So they go and do an assessment day. On so if they're going to put themselves forward for election, like a local yeah. election? So. Uh, then there's like a, a, a really tiny version of that at local elections. Because you got basically just so you got your, your representatives of the party, yeah. So yep. councillors, MPs, councillors, MPs, and then but in the background you got all that you got all the support the operational kind of professionals, yeah. yeah and there's a huge skill gap there as well, yeah. by the way. So go on, then, go on. So yeah, basically we get them in the hopper, make them in interest. So for next year, this is our first year, we've run two courses. Um, next year, it's about bringing them on that journey. So we're going to give them some skills about public speaking, media training. Um, if they decided that they come on our course, that they were like, do you know, I don't want to be an MP, but I fancy being a councillor. Then we'll give them specific training in local government. If they want to be an MP and they want some coaching to do the relevant, specific, whether whatever party they're going for, or none, they might want to be an independent, we'll give them coaching about how to do that next level. Does each party have their own different training for the MP for their... Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. And that's the joy of our organisation, is that the people that deliver the training are from all the parties. So we know we have the knowledge of the selection for all the different parties, because we're politically agnostic. So, therefore, you know, we can give the specific advice depending on the background of our team. So I've got about five um, people that are uh, associates to Campaign Force that help deliver my training. So give me an example of someone who's come through. Just grab that. Bottle yeah, someone who's come through 
campaign force and now gone on to get a role with a with a a, a party. Can you? What are they? What are they going to do? What What's they the journey now? look like? Pretty much. Um, so yeah, a real a real example. A real example. Real so example. bear in mind, we started in April. Yeah. April this year. Yeah. So since April, the first course, um, one of my guys came along. Um, he'd stood for a local election at the very lowest level, which is parish council, which is you know basically deals with dog poo bins and trees without kind of belittling it, but it's not a great deal of exp- village experience. Stuff, right? Village stuff, yeah, yeah, very local, very local. It's important, but very local. Um, very inexperienced. He's gone on to become. How old is he? Uh, he's about. <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong now, aren't I, mate? If you're listening, roughly, roughly. <laughs> he's mid thirties. Okay. Yeah, he's gone on and he's um, become a senior. Uh, part of the management team of his local political party. Okay, so he's got so above parish. Council. Yeah, well, he's actually part of the voluntary sister, the local party. It's like the you know the the localized version of the national party. Yeah, he's now part of the management team. <laughs> he's gone on from that. I've seen him really embracing campaigning, local local issues, uh, really engaging with social media politically. Um, he's gone on and applied for because he wants to be an MP so we've helped him coached him with his CV bearing in mind I've sat on the other side and received these CVs I know both in terms of civilian skills and the military skills what's one a bit like you know when you help your muckers out we're going to get a job in in industry and you're like mm, yeah putting you know platoon sergeant um, commanded 30 blokes you need to make that sound a little bit more relevant but still military. So I do that. And for, not bullshit. And not bullshit, yeah. You know, I had a budget of 30 million. Yeah, sure you did, big lad. Um, so basically, it's helping them with that, that CV tran- translation. Um, so when they do their application form, um, giving them some coaching and advice, I, you know, one-to-one coaching. So that's the final bit of the model. We've got Inspire at the top, come along to our workshop. You've got coaching, so that kind of, um, sorry, training. So coming on to do further training, that we're launching next year and the last bit which I've kind of fast forward to already with individual relationships that I've built is giving that advice CV advice interview advice um, yeah, and, and this individual went and actually applied for a parliamentary seat he was that good he was fast tracked to apply for the seat without even having done the initial selection board <laughs> he was invited to apply what was what, what was it about it that was um, good uh, what was it about him really stand out? Not just the military skills. It's a large part of it. So, you know, strategic planning, communication, values, standard standards, politics likes, it needs it at the moment. It really needs it. So it's like the differentiator. But the guide also had a really good civilian career as well. So it was about, as a fine balance of applying, you know, not majoring too much on one and on the other. But the bit that made him stood out from every other candidate was that military bit. That was that differentiating factor. So giving him advice on how to articulate the military persona. Because, you know, it can, because of some of the myths about the the veteran community, it can come across the wrong way unless, and, and, you know, the varying roles of our armed forces. It's about making sure that that comes across as well. Um, But it certainly is a game changer. In, in terms of what makes people stand out when I reply. What kind of, um, an entry level, what kind of salary are you looking at? So we talk about this on I, our I workshops as well. I understand it's going to change yeah. from role to role. So we talk about this on our workshops. Um, so there is a cost to politics. Um, in a local government, so if you were, and, and, and I've got a comment to make about local government as well, in terms of 
resettlement. But if you're in local government, you get an allowance, it's not a salary. So it's a bit like, I can only equate it to being in the reserves in terms of time commitment. But you are a local representative in your community and you get between six and eight thousand pounds, depending where you are in the country. If you're a cabinet member, and depends on what system they have in local government, so you might be head of housing, for example, and you get extra pay because you've got extra responsibilities. So you basically claim back on that. Yeah, you don't. It doesn't. It shouldn't cost you anything. You get your expenses back, um, and you get an allowance on top of the time in order to you know compensate the time that you put into your public service. So you'd be looking at like a, you need a second. You a do second need a career. Job. Yeah, it's like a supplement to it. Yeah, this is why there's a, an abundance of retirees that are involved in politics. But it is compatible. Or it could be an amputee with a war pension. <laughs> Just saying. Mm-hmm. Works out really well. For And bear in mind, we do not have a wounded, injured and sick member of parliament at the moment. Or anyone with a war pension. Yeah. We don't have what? A wounded, injured and sick member of parliament. We don't have a member of parliament from the Gurkha or Fijian community that you and I have all served alongside. We don't currently have a female veteran member of parliament. Penny Mordaunt was is a reservist. Um, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I didn't know we don't that. have a woman. I mean, a third of parliament's women. So where campaign force can help, and that's kind of part of our objectives, and we're not putting any figures on this, is to help diversify politics in terms of the balance, gender balance. Um, because you and I have served along some absolutely epic women. Um, and we need to be asking women to stand too. Um, so there is a diversity issue that we can change. At my last workshop, the average age was 37. And this was a room that included a brigadier in the room. So, yeah, the average age oh, of the attendees. Oh, so by time, yeah. oh no, they would be flying. <laughs> Absolutely flying, mate. So, but in terms of the average age of all of the attendees, the average age of an MP in the last parliament was 51, I think. So we can help bring the age down, but with people that have got an immense amount of experience from the formative years of, of our lives and those skills and those values. But when it comes to local government, which is the, the place that I really want to have an impact, where there are 20,000 vacancies over a four-year period, so there's elections every year in local government. Um, On local government? Yeah. If, if you can imagine, if you become elected as a local councillor, you're more likely, because you've invested in the community, to stay and resettle in that community of your family. Because you've invested, over, because it's a four-year term, there's bigger things at stake. You've understood the community better. You're contributing to your community. You're helping your community. And you're, you've got a better relationship than a lot of people in your community. And likewise, the community's invested in you because they've seen you. And I'd hope people would declare their military persona when they're going up for election. But that kind of confidence that the community have invested in you too. So I actually think this will help with the resettlement offer too. We're taking, a, we're taking a chill pill moment. We've had a technical issue again. Right. Crack, crack it. So if the camera angles change, we have a technical issue with the fucking camera and the audio. Uh, right. To go back over my last question. What are we talking? What are we talking? Um, so entry level, local government that people can expect. So a veteran goes in and goes, I want to be part of a local party or local. Or independent. Or independent. Yeah. What can I expect to work? So How does it work? It's certainly something we cover um, in our workshop. And I know, because you told yeah, me twice already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't record it. <laughs> well, yeah, we go into some considerable detail uh, for the third time in our workshop. But um, now, actually, in all seriousness, at local government level, 
you can you don't get a salary you get what's known as an allowance so it's about between six to eight grand and the way that i can sort of communicate this to the military community it's a little bit like being a reservist so that spare time that you take in order to be a reservist is the spare time that you'll take to be a counsellor and depends where you are in the country uh, but yeah about six to eight grand if you've got extra responsibility so some local government um, councils will operate like a cabinet system so a bit like in government as a cabinet at local level you'll have the cabinet member for uh, housing for example or the leader of the council do you get elected to so it's like volunteer or what um, you, no so in the same way the government doesn't get elected into cabinet once you become elected as a councillor, yes, of course, you need to get elected as a base level councillor. But whoever makes up the government, local government through majority, um, they will then form a local government. And depends on the system they operate. A lot have what's known as a cabinet system. So it, it's basically like a mini version of national government, uh, each with responsibilities. So if you have a responsibility, like you are the leader, you're going to be spending more time. So more responsibility. So of course you're going to get um, a higher degree of of salary on top of that. If they don't have a cabinet system, what do they yeah. have? Um, they have a committee system. So basically, um, does what it says on the tin. And pretty much, you'll have um, lots of committees for different responsibilities that then report into full council. Full council is a bit like parliament. How does each council decide what system they have? Um, they can have local government reform. Just the so way it's been. Okay. There's certain bits of legislation that apply to this. Uh, so, for example, where I live, we're changing our system from the boroughs and the districts and the county council, which is the next tier. We're combining the two into what's known as a unitary authority. So it, it takes on two different councils and wraps it into one. In terms of those efficiencies of savings, obviously not duplication of effort, and it's a bigger, more strategic body. So actually, when I speak to people on our workshops and they say, oh, I want to be an MP, I want to affect change. Great. You know, we'll, we'll help you with that. But in some ways, you can actually have more responsibility and more hands on budget in local government, because unless you are in government at national level or working as a minister, having access to budget, if you're just an MP, a backbencher, arguably someone working at county council, for example, or unitary, it's going to have closer and influence close, change. They're closer to the centre. Exactly. They're closer yeah. to affecting real change. And more importantly, seeing it, because you live in that community too, right? You represent that community as a councillor in the first place, but then for the wider community in terms of your responsibility. So I think that's a really exciting part of local government and a really good place for veterans to use their skills their ability, their strategic planning, their communication, their problem solving, um, and dependent on obviously your trade and what arm or service um, that you've been in, those extra skills you'll have from your trade, hugely transferable into local government. It can be a pretty rapid transition in, can't it? Like James Glancy came on. Oh, yeah. yeah. James Glancy came on. He was my 50th, uh, only you could have that spot. My 50th episode was going to be a, you know, I wanted someone significant on. Which isn't James Glancy, sorry Jim. No, but you know, someone like I think I think I had my dad scheduled to come on. And my dad had been he was like, I'm in an hour coming on, he's a recovering alcoholic and he's like, oh, I'm trying to get on to talk about his journey. Yeah. And it, and anyway, the way it worked out, Jim ended up being number fifty. I had a cancellation, Jim was number fifty. And then within a matter of weeks of Jim being on, I mean he's a <laughs> conservationist, environmentalist, you know. T V personality, the adventurer, yeah. You know, um 
within a matter of weeks of him coming on, it was it was a Brexit party. MEP. MEP. Yeah. It was it was a Bre- it was a Bre- Brexit party and a candidate. M- yeah. MEP. I've worked for and MEPs then he won as well. <laughs> and he won. Yeah. He was an MEP now. Right. He came back on that like four episodes. What the fuck happened there? Like that. And it was a. You'd be in some be in some event. Or he says that on the podcast. It's like that. It can be really quick in. You know, if you. It's, um, but as you I think, say, the thing I liked about that journey is that it surprised a lot of people. I think. Oh, with James. Look, James, yeah, yeah, looking at his background and things. Um, and that's what I'm finding in politics in general is that the more and more people I speak to, um, in terms of, you know, we don't get involved in the party political piece, but obviously we've got the network there. But, but it, you know, it really does go against convention. People are like, well, actually, I want to do this. I want to do that. And you're like, oh, wow, it's surprising. You know, you'll get, I, I spoke to one guy who's got an MBA. He's, um, you know, full career. He's now in the reserves a major in the reserves, had a full, you know, LE commissioned, epic bloke. I think he's a special constable as well. And this guy, he was like, oh, yeah, I might think about um, parish council kind of thing. I'm like, no, you know, you've got to raise the bar. You, you're, the amount of skills and experience you've got, you'd be an epic police and crime commissioner, for example. And those guys have budget and responsibility. So you could go in as a, a commissioner. Yep. And have nothing to do with, like... Um being a counsellor and all that. Yep. Just going to Straight in his police and crime commission. Right, this is the side I don't understand. So explain, just give, give me, so we got police and crime commissioner, you got local counsellor. And to me, that those are those are um, public-facing positions. Yeah. Right, they're not ops, public-facing positions. So what other public-facing positions are there in local government? That are so from the bottom, parish council, that's your dog poo, bins and trees. So quite low-level village kind of affairs. Yeah. And they tend actually to be non-party political. People tend to get co-opted. Sometimes there's elections. Next rung up the ladder is um, district or borough council. So these are people that have allowances, you know, full-on election. Party politics tends to get involved. Independents do get elected as well at that level. At that level, do you not have like a Crown Police Commissioner there? Uh, I'll come on to that because okay, that's sorry. a bit a little bit higher up. Yeah. Next level up, you tend to have either what's known as a unitary authority or a county council. So they tend to be more strategic. So they get involved in things like police and fire authority. They'll have a link in to the police crime commissioner, for example. Um, your schooling, school places, your highways, real punchy strategic infrastructure. They'll be your county council unitary level. I'm such an idiot. I'm such an idiot. Because I was not. I, I, no, I know, because I was thinking, mate, until this moment, I've never thought, well, borough council and council council, council yeah. different things, just different names. So... But now it's still on to me. <laughs> Such an idiot. Colchester Borough Council. Chelmsford Borough Council. Yeah. Obviously, Colchester, I was, I was, I was, de- uh, um, I was raised there then. I was um, based yeah. in Colchester Borough Council. Chelmsford Borough Council. The overarching is Essex County Council. Yep. Right, got you. And closely, kind of at that level. You know, it, you know, this actually demonstrates that you know, people like you, you know, working business, um, absolutely, you know, kicking ass. In the in the, those areas, that level of understanding, we've got a job to do, and that's not your fault. That's um, a lot of people's fault, and that's why I want to have an effect with Campaign Force because that's this is our community, and I'm like this community's got loads of potential, and we need to unlock that potential. First thing we need to do is share the secret. Question for you: So why why is why are you having to do it? Why um, why do the it's going to do it? But why? Yeah. Is not in a, in a council's interest, be it borough or county. Why is it not in their interest 
to make the public more aware of how they work, the structure they are, and what's available in terms of work and influence. So there are campaigns that have an outreach. So there are sort of engagement, getting more women in politics, for example. Um, so that there, there are ways, there are examples that are inspiring me to do this. So it's not necessarily the responsibility. I just don't think they've woken up to the potential. Um, I think business, I use that as an example all the time because that's what I know from my time at MOD, from what I experienced on a day-to-day basis. Really business woke up um, and they've seen a shift away from veterans being pushed into roles, you know, pushed into traditional roles. But now business is pulling them in because they've woken up to the potential and, and the bottom line, the effect on the bottom line of having veterans in your business. And I think that politics needs to go on a similar journey. Um, it was post-war Britain and, and I did some, I've been doing some historical research. I did a campaign on the, there were 22 members of parliament that were died in World War I um, and countless lords and sons of. Oh, really? um, yeah, the, 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 the baby of the House of Commons, so the youngest MP, was actually killed in World War One. There were two brothers that were MPs that, that were th- part of three brothers that were killed in World War One. So because the armed forces were bigger, because it was um, more interwoven with everyday life and communities, um, there was that realisation and understanding. We've had to campaign for business to, to wake up to that. And you know, we've come a long way. This is public life is the next kind of effort, as it were. Post-war Britain, everyone came home. They literally had to tap into those skills, those values, those talents to physically rebuild Britain. Now, you might want to say that we need to rebuild, rebuild, can't speak, rebuild Britain uh, politically or culturally or socially. Don't know, discuss. But there are fewer of us. Um, so it's even harder to have that relationship between the public and the armed forces. So I think this will help that because political figures are quite public in communities, whether it's your local councillor or member of parliament. So the more and more we can do of this nature, then the better it will be for our communities in terms of that visibility with smaller numbers in our communities. Very good. How much is it to go on your workshops, insight workshops? At the moment... A tenor. That's all we're charging. A tenor. Um, I learned very quickly that... I was that, not expecting a tenor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm expecting a lot more. Well, yeah, I've, I've done some market research. And you're probably talking you know, between one and £200 for these kind of courses. My team have decades of experience. We're giving you not just political skills, but actually some good life skills. You're just breaking even um, with that. It's basically... I mean, I was very lucky. I received a seed fund from a benefactor who believed in what I was doing happens to be a Royal Navy reservist as well, happens to be really successful in business. Um, so I met him in about, you know in the early days, about a year and a half ago, and said, I've got this idea. He's like, what do you need? Um, so he gave me you know a, a small sum of money, money to get this started. Um, where I'm at the moment, in terms of the sustainability for 2020, we're looking at fundraising uh, through ph- uh, political philanthropy, the political donation market is worth about 58 million a year. So I'm looking at approaching people that are that way inclined. Um, also for business to engage with this, because I think there's a vested interest uh, for business to have more veterans serving their communities because a stronger and safer politics 
um, will mean a stronger and safer um, economy. So I'm hoping to, to work with business too. I mean, I've already had the support of Facebook, as discussed with our good mucker Andy um, and Sage, um, also provide me with some training space, real estate. Uh, so really generous. I'm also um, a mentee as part of the Heropreneurs Mentorship Scheme. Uh, which has been oh, game changing. Been absolutely game changing. My mentor Simon um, is such a, an experienced businessman, former um, ex army himself, so has that empathy, but immensely experienced in business. So I've had that wraparound support. So in terms of charging for the workshops, my long term aim is to make that insight workshop free, so we can get those fifteen thousand service leavers engaged, get them in the hopper, get them to try before they buy. It might not be for everyone. Our conversion rate is about a third of people go on and engage with politics from there on in. If they then come onto the next level of the hopper, where we start training them specifically in different skills, so local government, public speaking, media training. I've engaged with a BBC journalist, former journalist, to look at media training. A friend of mine happens also to be a reservist, um, getting him uh, to deliver some public speaking training. Then, of course, we're going to be charging for more for those um, workshops because that's specialist advice and then one-to-one -one engagement so if you are going for a parliamentary assessment to become a member of parliament lean into our expertise and we can support you plenty of organizations do this anyway but they're not veterans they don't understand our language they don't understand us necessarily um, and we've got something a little bit different to add well, it's cool I really admire what you're doing I do generally thank you and um, I think You've been a, a bit younger. Would have uh, I'd be currently going uh, right? I'm going to go and be the parish councillor. Still time, mate. <laughs> Still time. <laughs> I'm enjoying it later. <laughs> no, seriously though, I mean, this follows resettlement. So if you, you know, your resettlement is is first and foremost looking after your family. If you can't look after yourself, then you can't look after others. Well, this is a, this is interesting about it. It's like uh, it's politics can be very off putting to people on a local level or on a, or a national level, you know, um, or an international level, but. When you're talking about having influence, having being able to influence the things that impact you or you and your family, yep. you know, um, and being able to get remunerated for it because, yep. look, you need money to survive. Then it's uh, it's like a win-win. You know, it's a win-win, and it's that you know, purpose in there, this sense of value, and um, and it's challenging. Isn't it? it's we'll have to get you along to one of our workshops. 100%. Come and have a look. Because um, then you can come and find out, meet the team, mix with other veterans. You know, and it's good fun. Um, and it's, you know, no commitment. Come and have a look. Um, and then next year, uh, so if, you, if people are interested in engaging with Campaign Force, then do go on campaignforce.co.uk. There's um, in our contact drop down, you'll see a sign up for a, a newsletter. Don't worry, you won't get bombarded. Sign up. Um, and you'll hear about next year's events. Really exciting. We're just planning events across the UK uh, for next year. We're looking at going to Edinburgh, Cardiff, um, in time, hopefully get across the waters to Northern Ireland as well, um, and across the rest of um, mainland UK. Um, so watch this space. Uh, we, we've built something here. Um, we're getting more support, more interest, and it's about you know branching outside of London, for example, uh, and getting closer to communities where veterans can make a difference. And if you do follow us on um, social media platforms at Campaign Force UK, you'll get up-to-date information um, from us on a weekly basis. You can dip in, dip out as you want. Perfect. Uh, but before we go, I'm going to embarrass you. 
Um, we know what we like. We love a challenge coin. Stand up, serve again. So just for all the work that you do, Hugh, uh, with the veterans community and this podcast and how you're really starting to change perceptions about the armed forces community and everything you do for us, I'd like to present you with a campaign force stand up, serve again challenge coin. On the back, it's got the Union Jack, um, the Houses of Parliament and some MTP mixed in there. This is from Challenge for Challenge Coins UK. Um, good bit of kit. Let's oh, present very, you with that. Very, very early, mate. Thank you very much. Question oh. for you. Alien has saved lives, is, eh? Alien has saved lives. Is the right? Is a metal coin? He's very nice. It's pretty cool. Uh, I will post this on social media. Is it? Have you enclosed this metal coin in a plastic sealed case so I don't try and eat this? Yeah, power edge. Power edge. Been absolute pleasure, Cheers, Johnny. Cheers, mate. Good luck. There you go. This week. That's it. Thank you for listening. As I like to say, please, please, if you listen to this on um, uh, an Apple device, please go on iTunes or onto Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a review. Please do that. It really helps. It helps get the podcast out to more people. More see people see it pop up in their in their uh, suggested podcast feed, and it makes me very happy. It makes us very happy to know that people appreciate the podcast. So please do that. I really appreciate it. You can also don't forget you can watch the podcast on YouTube. Uh, just look for HR Podcast on YouTube and you can watch us waffling away. Um, watch me waffling away with the guest. Thank you to the sponsors again. West Wayne Nissan who are giving up to a 20% discount to serving personnel and veterans for purchases at West Wayne Nissan, which is a dealership where you can only get certain models of Nissan from Westway and not any other dealership because Westway have got deals with Nissan whereby you can only get certain models in Westway. Such is the high regard that Nissan hold Westway in and the high regard that I hold Westway in, given that they are headed by Tony Lewis, ex-military. So thank you to those guys. Get along with the dealership. Also, thank you to uh, Rugby for Heroes. At Rugby Number 4 Heroes. Please look for them now on social media. Give them a follow on social media. They are formed from legends who do loads of fundraising for military charities. Uh, they've got an event going on probably as you're listening to this. If you listen to it on the 23rd of November, the Daily's podcast release, there's an event going on now, 11th Spa, raising money for charity. Please follow them. Rugby number four heroes. Or if you go to the website, it's rugbyforheroes.org. That is it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Keep listening to the podcast. Until the next time. Out.